And the title is, A Silver Cup in a Sack. So Genesis 44, 1 to 15. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Amen. Thank you so much for that. Well, good morning once again. Uh, it's great to be before you and bringing you God's word. For those of you who've who are interested, uh, we do have a series of questions available near the missionary board, so please avail yourselves of those. Obviously, we are continuing our series in Joseph. And I've got to be honest with you, this is a passage, as I work through it, I really struggled with some of the things that are contained in there. Uh, I think there's some of the things that Joseph did that I don't necessarily agree with and, and I don't know if God was totally happy with the way that Joseph did things. I think God was the overarching guide and director of Joseph's actions but I'm not sure if everything Joseph did was in line with God, what God would want but I think the end goal was ultimately reached. But what I do know is that there's a bigger picture in the overarching theme of what is happening in the story of Joseph. And this is a final test of Joseph. This is where Joseph is going to wrap up his test of his brothers. But I've got to be honest, it sets my teeth on edge a little bit. It seems a little bit cruel. It just seems a little bit too severe. And let's face it, it seems quite dishonest in a lot of ways. But then when I think about some of the things that have happened in my life, when I think about some of the interactions with God, 
And when I read accounts like Job in the Old Testament, I see that God allows and sometimes facilitates some of these incredibly severe and trying tests in our lives to wake us up and to make us aware of the fact we need to change things. We need to take serious steps in order to draw closer to him. We need to address things that we may have been suppressing and putting aside. And ultimately, he's calling us to address our sinfulness and to realise we really are nothing without him. Why does he do this? Why does he enact things like has occurred in Genesis 44? Why is it so important that we look at this? And I honestly believe it's because each and every one of us needs genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is an indispensable part of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have the gospel without proclaiming the need for repentance. But for some unknown reason, we don't want to talk about repentance. And I can tell you, every time I have, I've had someone send me a nasty message. It's insane. This is part of scripture. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' very last conversation with his disciples, he said this. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. In his name to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. So you see it's a command for us to do this. We don't have a choice, each and every one of us. As believers, so many want and at times demand that we preach forgiveness, we preach grace, we preach love. And they've indicated we should not speak on repentance. And yet this is God's command to proclaim it. That's what it says here. If you know another interpretation, please come and see me, but you better be good. But when we... Think about what we're to proclaim. When we think about God's message of the gospel, repentance comes first. And after genuine repentance, there's forgiveness. And it's in the forgiveness we experience the true grace and love of our Father. Yeah, we experience it a little bit before that, but it's only when we repent that we're just immersed in his grace and love, we're overwhelmed that he would forgive us. And so when I tell a genuine Christian that they need to repent, they don't get offended because they know it's part of the gospel. They know that they continually do it. And so if you're burring up, I've got to ask you why. Because that's not the way a Christian should react, my friends. 
those who've experienced the release and the joy and the freedom of knowing they've been forgiven. They've repented. And they'd never speak against those who obey this. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the power of your word. And it is your word. And I pray we'll accept the bits we love and the bits we're uncomfortable with. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be in the midst of what is said here this morning, that your name will be honoured and glorified and that people will engage with this message and that they'll draw closer to you. May it be for your honour and glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our account today, the bit we've had read out to us, begins with Joseph speaking to his stewards. So when we think about that, um, as Joseph is speaking to his steward, what are his brothers doing? They're, they're on their way back home. And when you think about where they're at right in life right now, they've just spent this incredible day with this governor in Egypt. And they've had this massive feast with him. This governor shared so much with them and really just poured stuff out upon them. They were entreated. They were treated by him so incredibly well, so much so that as they looked at this governor of Egypt, Joseph, they thought that he was even a different man to the one they experienced the first time. The first time he was harsh, he was serious. And so, you know what? They even skipped breakfast. They are so full from what they had the previous night that they're just, no, nah, can't eat anymore. This has just been a great time. Perhaps as they walked along the road, they were joyful and there was a bit of mucking around between the brothers and things like that. They got everything they need. They left Egypt well. They're heading home. They'll be with their family soon. They might have been celebrating. And Joseph is speaking to his steward. In the middle of all of that, perhaps the brothers also were able to put aside the thoughts of Joseph that kept coming up to them from time to time throughout the years. But Joseph and God hadn't forgotten, hey. And it's interesting, in this whole account of Joseph, we see that Joseph and God are relentless in pursuing these men. Joseph had this one final test which I believe, again, was at the direction of God. And Joseph had to know if his brothers were truly repentant of what they'd done all those years ago. And so when he sent his brothers on their way, he gave instructions to his steward. And he said, fill the man's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money back in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money in the grain. And they did as Joseph had said. And Joseph is specific in in Speaking about his cup, it is his silver cup that he has asked the steward to put in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. And there's a lot of contention and a lot of people who believe that Joseph did actually use this cup for divination. I don't believe that's the case. If that was the case, he would have said to his steward, put the cup that I use for divination into the mouth of that sack. But instead he said, my silver cup, the one I drink from, put that in the sack. And so if Joseph doesn't do divination using that cup, why did he say this? This is what he tells the steward 
to accuse the men of. In a way, I suppose Joseph does divine the future, but it's not from this. It's from God and him revealing it to him. And Joseph is doing this to continue his cover so his brothers will believe that he is this man of Egypt and not Joseph. He doesn't want to reveal his identity at this stage. But it's more than that as well. Joseph also wants these guys to believe that he knows the truth, that he has been able to divine everything that is going on. And he's been given some illust- they've been given some illustrations along the way where Joseph has somehow known who was the oldest and who was the youngest and everyone in between. How did he do that? He's known things that they don't understand how he could possibly know. And so Joseph wants to feed that in order to get the truth out of his brothers. So he continues this act, not just as governor, but one who divines, one who can see the truth, one who knows all. And they believe that he had some sort of power. They didn't understand it, but they thought that he had some sort of power where he could tell the truth. And so Joseph steward overtakes the brothers and he makes his accusations to them and of course they declare their innocence in verse 7 it says far be it from your servants to do such a thing it's impossible there is no way we do that after the way that we've been treated and they say whichever of your servants did this whoever took the cup he will die we'll also be the Lord's servants so confident they were of their innocence. I think there's a warning first and foremost. Be careful what you say. It's a pretty big thing to say. Just kill him, whoever's got it. And it's interesting. I think the steward knew more than we're told. I think the steward knew Joseph. I think the steward somehow knew this was Joseph's brothers or there was a reason for Joseph to try and find out the truth because he immediately turns it around. This is what the brothers offer. And the steward says, no, 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 no need for that. Why should everyone suffer for one man's sin? Only the person who has taken the cup will become my servant. The rest of you shall be innocent. You can go. You can return to your families. And so the steward gets them to open their sacks. They open their sacks one by one, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. What do they say when they open Reuben's sack? Absolutely nothing. What's there? The money. And as they open each sack, the money is in top of each sack. Not even mentioned. But I wonder what they thought. I wonder if there was this sense of foreboding. And they get down to Benjamin. He's the last one to lower his sack. And they open it up. And of course, here's the cup. And remember, the steward said, only the one with the cup will come with me back to Egypt. And he'll be my slave. The rest of you can go free. Think about their situation. They have left it for as long as possible to head back to Egypt to get grain for their families. Their families are in great need of that grain. If ever there's a time where they could say, Benjamin, mate, for now you're on your own. We need to get this stuff back to our families so they'll survive. If ever there's a time that they could use that as an excuse, now's that time. And this whole entire test is to see if there's been a heart change. 
to see if they'll leave Benjamin in slavery as they sold Joseph into slavery. Has there been any change in their lives whatsoever or are they still hard men who don't care for their brothers and don't care for their father? But the reaction is not perhaps what was expected. Every brother tore his clothes and each of them loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. It's the first phase of Joseph's last test. They had all initially insisted that the one who had the cup would die and the rest would remain as slaves. And the steward has again said, no, that's not necessary. I only want the one who's taken the cup. The rest of you can go. And yet all of them tore their clothes as a sign of grief. None of them were thinking of themselves. None of them. They were all thinking about Benjamin. And perhaps they were also thinking about Jacob. And they made the decision to not desert Benjamin, but to return to Egypt. Something's happening in their lives. Something has changed. And as we read this account, we know they're innocent, but there's always a but, isn't there? It's amazing what guilt does to people. Way back in the dim dark ages, um, I was a department manager at Big W. Part of my role was actually on the security team. I didn't look for um, shoplifters, but I was responsible to apprehend them. And we did that on a regular basis, but we also became aware that someone was actually stealing part of the staff lunches. That's just an issue, isn't it? It's just, why would people do that? But whoever this person was loved stone fruit. So we decided we were going to set a trap. And so we planted particular stone fruit. And sure enough, the person took that stone fruit and we caught them with it. We took them into an office and we started talking to them about taking people's lunches and how they shouldn't do that. And we said, do you admit that you've done that? And they said, yes. And I suppose you'd like to know about the TVs and the DVDs and the CDs. And we said, well, yes, we were going to get to that. So um, what are you going to do about that? She goes, well, I've still got it all. I'm happy to return it. We're like, well, that's good, but you shouldn't have done that either. Then we went outside and we went, what the heck is she talking about? <laughs> you see, this girl had been stealing TVs and DVD players and CDs, all sorts of things. When she wrapped up at the end of the day, she'd put all these things into those big white tubs that Big W used to have. It's very interesting they don't have them anymore. And she'd go and she'd put them in the bin outside when no one was watching. And then she'd go around the back after work and she'd take them back out. She'd stolen tens of thousands of dollars of product. She got busted because of a peach. It's amazing, isn't it? But the guilt just weighs in on us. And I believe each of the brothers knew they were innocent. And I believe they knew Benjamin was innocent of the charge that was brought against them. But something's happened in their lives. And Judah comes before Joseph, or the governor, as he sees it. And he says, what shall I say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. 
It's incredible. These guys were faced with the same temptation that they'd yielded to with Joseph. Jacob's beloved son, Benjamin, has been entrusted to their care. They were free to return to their father and break his heart by telling him that Benjamin had done a terrible thing and stolen the governor's cup and that he was no more. But suddenly the penny drops. They were not guilty of what they were accused of this time, but they were guilty of something else. And it's like Joseph's brother, brothers sorry, have been living out what we're told in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. They see that they're guilty before God. They're finally confronted with that guilt. And so many are not willing to face guilt or question their guilt. And we're told again and again by friends, by counsellors, by well-minded people that we're to overcome our guilt that we're not bad people, we shouldn't think we're bad people, we shouldn't think that in a guilty manner. And so the goal is that we actually feel better about ourselves. We suppress those feelings of guilt and we do things that make us feel good to get over that. And even in the church, we're told we shouldn't make people feel guilty. Who are we to judge? God is a God of love. He doesn't want us to feel guilty. He wants us to feel good about ourselves. And if you believe that, you're seriously deluded. Guilt is not the enemy. What if guilt is a God-given emotion, a God-given emotion, for us to identify that which we've done wrong? What if it's a call for order? What if it's a call for us to sit quietly and go, why do I feel guilty? And then to deal and identify with that which has made us feel guilty. Because it's a willingness to deal with guilt that leads us to true repentance. When the brothers first visited Egypt... Joseph had been severe with them. They were struck by the power and authority that he had. They realized that this was a man who was to be feared. And in the second visit, they saw the grace of this governor. They were invited to this incredible feast, had generosity poured out upon them. When we relate that to God, we call that common grace. We all receive common grace. And the overall picture that we're given of Joseph is a man of integrity, a man who could be appealed to. And so as these guys come back to Egypt, they go straight to Joseph. And Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house and he's still there and they fall before him. They just throw themselves on the floor. When they were first accused by the steward, they demanded justice. They were innocent of the crime. But now they come before Joseph. They fall before him out of respect, knowing that Joseph has their lives in their hands. And they plead for mercy. Judah says, what shall we say? How shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? He's literally saying, we can't do this. We're guilty and there's nothing we can do. God has found our guilt. Behold, we are in my Lord's hands, both we and also the one whose cup, sorry, in whose hand the cup was found. 
The situation with the cup has been the catalyst for the brothers to see the root of all their problems. Judah has declared their guilt before God. And it appears Joseph's desire and hope for his brothers has now become their desire and hope too. They want to deal with what they have confessed. They aren't going to run from their responsibility anymore. They're not going to run from the terrible actions that they've done. How can Joseph be sure that they're genuine? How can he be sure that they're truly sorry for what they've done? That they're no longer the treacherous men that they once were? Faced with their pending judgment before the governor of the land, Joseph gives them that one last opportunity to desert their brother as they deserted him. And Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Again, that is that word shalom, a word that the Israelites used. And in this context, it would have been incredibly jarring to these people. Joseph maintains his role as governor, not revealing his true identity. And as such, how can he as governor know the past actions of the brothers? He can't. Why then would he make all of them suffer for the sins of one? So he says, no, you go home. It's only this fella who's taken my cup. I can't punish you all. That's not just. But knowing his guilt and the guilt of his brothers, it's Judah who steps up once more and he appeals for mercy. Back in Genesis 37, if you remember, it was Judah who stepped up and made the suggestion to sell Joseph into slavery. He was the one who set this whole account in motion. He's the one who is responsible for all of this. And yet he refuses to sell or betray Benjamin as he did Joseph. And remember too that it was Judah who offered himself as a surety to Jacob for the safe return of Benjamin. It's Judah too who seems to have sensed something in Joseph, something which inspired him to appeal for his mercy. And he seeks permission to speak with Joseph, to have a word in his ear. And he gives this rundown to Joseph of everything that happened. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left to his mother's children. And his father loves him. And Judah provides this abridged account of everything that has happened in their encounters with Joseph or the governor as they see it. And it was Joseph who asked about their father and younger brother. And they told him the truth about them. They didn't conceal anything. They disclosed that Benjamin had once had a brother who was no more and that their father was closer to Benjamin than all of them. No jealousy there. That's just a statement of fact because he was the only remaining son of the wife that he dearly loved. And Jacob, the father, had struggled to release Benjamin to go to Egypt. But they brought him because of Joseph's insistence. um, Judah's not blaming Joseph here. He's just stating the facts. This is how we've arrived at where we were. And finally, he provides Joseph with what his father had said concerning him and Benjamin. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If Joseph takes Benjamin, the only remaining son of Rachel, it would break his father's heart and most likely cause his death. He'll go down to the grave mourning. And Judah lays it all out for Joseph, seeking for him to understand the predicament they're in. 
He appeals for mercy and grace, not for himself, but for Benjamin and for Jacob, whom Joseph has expressed some concern for. And he says, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord, let the boy go back with these brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that that will do to my father. If Joseph was willing to allow Judah to substitute himself for Benjamin, much suffering would be averted. And Judah's plea is for him to remain a slave rather than be freeing Canaan and see the pain and suffering of his father which he would have been partly responsible for. Judah has changed so much. He's willing to accept slavery than blame another or a situation or whatever. He's willing to accept his own misery rather than bring misery upon his father and upon Benjamin. He's undergone a radical transformation in many ways. Even more miraculous, if you like, than the transformation of Joseph. Up until this chapter, there's been no real indication of genuine repentance. But now we see it. I realise we're out of time. It's been a long service. I'll have to skip to the end. So let's just talk about what this does for us. I want to ask you, are you dealing with hardship Are you dealing with severe situations? Are you questioning if God even loves you and cares? You need to ask, is God bringing those things along? Because there's things in your life that you haven't dealt with, things that you need to deal with. Don't hear me saying that all hardship and all difficult circumstances are because of that. I'm not saying that at all. But we need to ask the question. Do we want revival? at SDBC? Do we want people so sold out for God that others look upon this church and say, man, we want to be like that? Because if we want revival, genuine revival has only ever occurred in areas where true repentance was. And repentance begins with the house of God. It's on us. When I speak about repentance and the need to repent, if the first thing to pop into your head is someone else's name or to look across the auditorium, you don't get this. That's not a Christian reaction or response. Pull the log out of your eye before you start looking at the splinter in your brother's eye or your sister's eye. Is God pursuing you I believe he is constantly I believe he wants us to become more and more like him and I believe it's like a refiner's fire he gets rid of the dross first the rubbish they're the obvious things but then he gets rid of the alloy too which is a metal that's used but he wants to get rid of that he wants pure gold and so he pursues us And he refines us. And he does that through repentance. He does that through revealing guilt. Guilt is not the enemy. Guilt is a tool of God for us to turn to him and ask him to reveal to that thing which is holding us back from being all we can be for him. 
Don't hear me saying that if God is pursuing you and he's bringing hardship and severe circumstances into your life, you're going to have misery every day. It's not the case because we experience God's common grace. But there'll be times where you find yourself feeling guilty, feeling that you fall short. And I just ask you to sit in that space, just examine that. Ask God why. He'll reveal it to you. In the midst of all that is on your mind, does it circle back to one point? That's the thing you need to deal with. And I challenge you to do so. How will you deal with it? Will you repent? Are you willing to sacrifice everything as Judah did in order to be right with God? Because seriously, that's all that matters. And if you come to the front and you repent, you're not going to get any judgment here. You would not believe the things that we get told as pastors. And we're not here to judge. We're here to put you in connection with a father who dearly loves you. And he wants you. And he pursues you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You're a good God. I thank you that you pour your love, your grace, your mercy out upon us. I thank you, Lord, that you have said part of your gospel message is the proclamation of the need of repentance. And Lord, I thank you for the joy that comes after repentance. I thank you that we no longer need to feel guilty. I thank you that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins once and for all. And I thank you, Lord, that when we're Christians, we still need to repent, but there's no longer any condemnation for us. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear that we'll be cast into the fires of hell because Jesus has paid the price and he stands at your right hand, Father, and he intercedes for us and he says, Father, Charlie sinned again, but I've paid for it. And so I just ask for your justice. Forgive him, Lord. I paid the price. And I thank you that's true for each and every one of us who know, obey and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, do not let us rest. Pursue us, I pray. Refine us. And refine us through the gift of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you all to stand with us as we sing out that?